Listener Production. A warning. This episode references violence and sexual abuse of children. For more information and support, the National Domestic and Family Sexual Violence Counselling Service can be contacted on 1800 737 732 or by visiting 1800respect.org.au. If you or someone you know is in crisis, contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. Welcome to Crime Insiders Forensics. For those joining us for the first time, my name's Catherine Fox. I'm a former GP, crime author and screenwriter. I'm enthralled by forensics and have spent thousands of hours researching for books and screenplays. So, I thought, why not turn my research into a podcast? Every week, you'll be joining me in discovering how forensic science is helping solve high-profile crimes in Australia and around the world. This week, a profound miscarriage of justice that triggered radical transformation in Dutch forensics. If you regularly listen to this podcast, you'll know that forensic science is an intricate, highly specialised and complex area of expertise. And while judges have a high level of knowledge, the distinction between law and science leaves room for problematic gaps in interpreting forensic evidence. A DNA expert on source level just needs the DNA profiles to write his report. He doesn't need the context of the case. Because we know context can potentially bias you. Enter Rojana Deru, forensic advisor in the Dutch courts. To begin, Rojana takes us back 23 years. It's broad daylight in a park in Rotterdam. Two children have been violently attacked, with only one surviving, setting the stage for the wrongful arrest of an innocent man for a crime he did not commit. Schiedammer Park murder, it's one of the biggest and most known miscarriages of justice in the Netherlands. So what happened was there were two children, uh, one of them being killed in a park, in Schiedam, therefore the name, 10 and 11 years old, so quite young. And the boy survived by playing dead. And the girl, unfortunately, died. Right from the start, they had a suspect, and it was actually the person who called the police. He was biking there in the area, um, and he got stopped and asked to make the phone call, or he decided to make the phone call to call the police. There had been reports that he committed sexual assault with children, and therefore he became a suspect right away. The young boy was interviewed by police. Was he helpful in the investigation in terms of his evidence? Looking back now, he, he gave a very accurate description of the offender, especially about the face of the offender. He was quite detailed. So apparently the offender was very pale and he had a very spotty face. It sounded like pustular acne from what I read that the attacker had. Did that fit with the police's prime suspect? No, it did not. So that was quite interesting that they put that information aside. I suppose a lot of the time, you know, eyewitnesses, you can get 10 people witnessing one scene and they all see something different, describe something different. What struck me about that description of the spotty face, it's extremely specific. Yeah, yeah, it is. And it actually wasn't the only evidence that was put aside. 
there was also other evidence found, for example, DNA evidence at the scene, and that did not match with the suspect. So it was also quite interesting that in the end, they say the investigation was very tunneled towards this one suspect and that other possibilities were not investigated or not investigated enough that could have potentially lead to the real attacker. It's difficult to now look back and say, why are the police charging this man who didn't look like? It, it seems, yeah, you can understand why they target him, a pedophile in a park. This is a pedophilic crime and it's horrific and he's on the scene. So circumstantially, that's very suspicious. When you put the little boy's evidence in and the DNA, I gather, wasn't just anywhere. Where was the DNA from someone else found? I believe later on, I'm not sure it was back in 2000, there was also DNA found under the fingernails of the girl and on the shoe of the girl and on the lace, the lace, the shoelace as well. That, that was used to strangle. And that DNA didn't match with the suspect. When we're talking about the travesty of justice here, what happened to their prime suspect? Yeah, he was put to trial and he was convicted for the Schiedamer Park murder. And it wasn't until four years later when the real attacker spoke up and confessed that he got uh, released. Four years later, this man's in prison and some stranger comes forward to the police and confesses. He got apprehended with another case and then his DNA was put into the DNA database and I believe there was a match found then with the DNA found in the Schiedamer Park case and his DNA and then he confessed. So in that case, you would have seen... I assume, the DNA evidence on the shoelaces. If I would have seen that, uh, and I also would have noticed that the the judges are putting it aside, I obviously cannot think back in the days how it would have been, but nowadays if it would have happened, I would probably strongly advise the judges to really look into it again and not just put it aside because that DNA did not just show up there. Um, but in the end, it's always the decision of the judge if they uh, want to look further into the forensic evidence or not. Do you then have any chance of appealing if a judge ignores something that you consider to be vital evidence like DNA on a shoelace? Well, thus far, it only happened to me once in the years that I've been working that judges wanted to put aside DNA evidence that in my eyes was ex- extremely important for the case. So there was this very strong forensic evidence, they agreed on that, but they weren't convinced. And that was on the rest of the case, so the context of the case, and that is what out my field of expertise. And in the end, they didn't change their decision, which obviously is, I'm just an advisor. So with knowing that, that was their decision. How did the police receive you and your role? Because if they honed in on the park murder suspect so quickly, presumably they don't (laughs) they wouldn't have liked being contradicted. We are actually not in touch with the police, or me personally not, because once a case is presented, the case file is presented by the public prosecution, um, we ask them to write an additional report. Uh, But during a trial process, forensic advisors are not allowed to be in touch with the experts or the uh, police directly. Only after the trial is finished, we can maybe generally discuss some topics that maybe could have be improved in the future. But there's no risk of contamination or coercion or 
um, encouraging people to change their report or evidence from you? During a trial process, no. (laughs) Because we are not allowed to be in touch with any of the parties except for the judge we are working for. Based on that, which obviously sounds like a terrible miscarriage of justice, and the convicted fellow served four years, I think it was, and then he was released based on this new confession and new evidence. Was there much of a reaction in the Netherlands? Yes, there was, uh, especially in the politics as well, because it turned out the communication between the experts and the judiciary was lacking or could have been a lot better. So therefore, they put an evaluation committee together, the committee posthumous, and they wrote this evaluation report on this case in which they basically stated that there is a gap between science and law and that we as the Netherlands should really put effort in bridging that gap. And a few years later, a national experiment or pilot started with forensic advisors. So at five locations, both courts and court of appeals in the Netherlands, forensic advisors started trying to bridge this gap between science and law. The system, judicial system in the Netherlands is very different from Australia. Can you quickly explain the difference between our two legal systems? We have an inquisitorial system, uh, meaning we don't have a jury. So that's the biggest difference, I guess. That is a big difference. Yeah, so in our cases, the prosecution will present the case file. And at the start of the process, we have an investigative judge who still decides whether or not additional evidence can come into the case file. And then in the end, uh, depending on the size of the case, very complex cases, there are three judges. In a smaller case, there's just one judge. They are called trial judges, and they will say something about someone's guilt or not. So they make the ultimate decision based on the evidence that they request or is presented to them. Exactly. Just to go back a, a little way, if you can pick and choose your forensic expert, presumably you can choose one that has a more favourable based on a narrative for your case. And that obviously is a very big frustration for the justice system and judges and juries aren't, and lawyers aren't trained, particularly in forensic science. If you're dependent solely on the judge to understand the forensic evidence that's presented to him or her and they don't have much knowledge in that field, what was decided that could be done? Yeah, what you're talking about is exactly the knowledge gap I'm also talking about. So in the Netherlands, um, they basically said two things. Firstly, we needed to educate the judiciary system more, so on basic forensic knowledge. That was the first thing they said after the evaluation uh, report. And the second thing they said, uh, maybe a forensic advisor can come into play and they basically will work for the judge. And our role is to explain the forensic evidence because forensic reports are getting more and more complex nowadays with the uh, technological innovations we have. And also more forensic disciplines are emerging, which are quite complex. For example, uh, digital forensics, which is a very complex uh, field on its own, but also, for example, activity level reports. And like you said, we expect judges or juries to understand these kind of reports, but they have a law background. They don't have a science background. So the idea in the Netherlands is if you put a forensic advisor uh, next to the judge, uh, they can help explain these kind of reports to the judge and up their basic forensic knowledge.
With cases like Sally Clark and Kathleen Folbig, for example, using statistics, the adage is that stats can lie. You can make stats say whatever you want to. And clearly in those cases, the statistics really sway juries. Like there's a big difference between one in 74 million. People can kind of get their head around that that's unbelievably rare. But a one in 25, which was actually decided more likely in another case, actually, there was another case where a nurse was accused of killing a number of patients and the chances of her being at the deaths of those patients was initially astronomical, but in reality it was probably about one in 25. A one in 25 is like a 4% chance, but a lot of people can't equate that. If you said to someone there's a 4% chance of being hit by a car if you cross the road, they may choose not to. But if there's a 4% chance of winning the lottery, they might buy tickets. So it's very, very difficult for people to understand percentages and statistics and chances and probability. If you think a 4% chance is a lot and someone else may say a 4% chance isn't a lot, how do you actually put it in an unbiased way for a judge? So one of the roles of forensic advisors, and it's actually quite a big part of our study as well, Bayesian reasoning and statistics, is to make sure judges understand correctly and do not make logical errors when reading the forensic reports when Bayesian reasoning is being used. Um, Because we have seen in the past that uh, forensic reports are not well understood and therefore um, misinterpretations of evidence have occurred. And... This Bayesian reasoning will stay there. This is the way how we report and we use this because it's logically correct. And the only thing we can do is write it down in such a way that it will be understandable for a judge and that we communicate it in such a way that judges will understand it. And we need to train them as well on Bayesian reasoning. It's definitely very difficult um, and errors are made. What is Bayesian reasoning? With Bayesian reasoning the evidence will be evaluated with two or more hypotheses and in the end, a likelihood ratio. So an evidential value will be given to the evidence, which can be used in court. So it's weighed up from two different hypotheses? The evidence given to different hypotheses, yes. When you come in and you're suddenly telling the lawyers that you're going to be working with a judge and advising a judge on the forensic evidence... Did you get backlash from the legal community? So in 2012, this position started first with a pilot. Um, And actually back then, uh, it wasn't really known yet what the forensic advisor was supposed to do. The role wasn't established yet. So first the forensic advisors had to look into which phase of the trial process and in what kind of cases and what kind of uh, different forensic disciplines. Actually, there is a need for forensic advice and how are we going to shape this um, in the Dutch legal system and nowadays it has evolved. We are very approachable for judges so basically judges can just walk into our office or they can just give us a call with any kind of question. If it is a small question we can answer it right away and if it's a bigger question for example to look at a whole case file uh, we can write a forensic advice for that case. It has happened that uh, the lawyer asked why we were present during the case. But actually, since 2015, the support from forensic advisors was incorporated in the Dutch professional standards for criminal law. So everyone is aware that we are around. 
There have been some questions about our role in the judiciary system and what we are doing. Therefore, we wrote a Dutch article in 2021 to make this more clear to everyone. And that article we also just published in English. Does that cause any consternation or frustration for the experts who, in their own fields who've written their report and they're having it um, please explain or provide more research or more evidence? As far as I'm aware of, experts are actually quite happy with the forensic advisors in the Netherlands because they have the feeling their reports are being better understood and more critical questions are being asked. Do you think that, in a way, it makes them be more specific and less vague and more careful about their report? This is an interesting question, because back in the day, there was not really a possibility for feedback between the judges and the experts. And when the forensic advisors came, nowadays we have feedback loops between the experts and the forensic advisors. So, for example, when the experts have the feeling part of their reports are misunderstood, uh, they can tell us and we can discuss this with judges to see whether they actually misunderstand this evidence or not. And we can feedback this. Um, but also the other way around, if we see something uh, judges don't understand, we can give this back to the experts and we can look together how we can change it in such a way that judges will understand it. Um, but also, for example, um, when the experts want to uh, have a new style of reporting, they, for example, have three different reports and they give them to us and we will evaluate the types of reports and we will also discuss this with the judges to see which one they understand best. In the end, we all want that the judges understand the evidence. Do you think that would make the, the reports more vague or more specific? I would say more specific. Because that's interesting in the sense that, like with um, an x-ray report, um, when litigation came in, it was really interesting, and MRI reports, CAT scan reports, all those things, you'd find there was a notice in the reports it would say cannot exclude and there's 400 <laughs> there's a list of not 400 but there's a list of things that you cannot exclude and you'd read the report and you'd think well that doesn't really help me all that much so people became cautious with what they were writing and then suggest further examinations does that similar sort of thing happen with the forensic reports and the forensic advisors um, well, forensic reports will always ask, uh, will always talk in probabilities. They will never, or almost never, I should say, give a yes/no answer. And obviously, the judge wants a yes/no answer. Did he do it? Yes or not? But the expert will never be able to give that. The role of a forensic advisor will just aid in this communication process, because ultimately, our goal is to facilitate a two-way conversation between science and law. But the evidence is not going to get easier. Forensic science is very complex and the reports are very complex and our role is to make sure less or no misinterpretations of the evidence are happening. If they are providing factual evidence to a judge as opposed to for a prosecution or a defence lawyer, do you think that will remove some of the perceived bias in their report writing? So what they try to do in the Netherlands is not always possible, uh, but when a forensic expert has to write a report, they try to only give him the information he needs. So a DNA expert on source level just needs the DNA profiles to write his report. He doesn't need the context of the case because we know context can potentially bias you. So we always try to separate 
the evidence that has to be investigated by the expert and the context of the case, so the chances of bias are being minimalized. Are you assigned to a case to be available to that judge or judges? We work on request-based, so judges will come up to us if they have a question, but uh, no, not necessarily that we work on every homicide case. Because in some cases, the evidence is quite clear and the judges don't have any questions about the evidence and then we will not be involved. Do you find the judges are open to being educated and re-educated, if you like? That's a good question. Um, So when I started in 2019, the role was quite known already. Uh, So the judges uh, were aware of what a forensic advisor could do and how they could benefit from having a forensic advisor work on a case with them. Um, So I have actually never encountered any problems with a judge who didn't want to hear my advice, for example. But I have heard back in when the role was just established in 2012, forensic advisor encountered a bit of backlash for from judges um, being like, I've always done this by myself. Why, I sh- why should I now accept this advice from a forensic advisor? But in the end, we don't have anything to say about the outcome of the case. We only advise. In the end, the judge will always interpret and decide. With forensic advisors now, how do you think some of those miscarriages of justice could have been prevented? Well, obviously, I hope they won't happen anymore, but we can't say that and we won't know until like a few years from now. Um, But I hope with our role and with our critical assessment of the forensic reports, we try to diminish the chance of misinterpretations of the evidence by making the judges aware of potential errors and logical reasoning errors. Um, Because in the end, the role of the forensic advisor has the idea that they will help minimize or bridge the gap between science and law. And I think if that gap is bridged, the possibility of misinterpretations of evidence and therefore potential miscarriages of justice will minimize or at least become smaller than it is now. And again, with Sally Clark's case where um, an expert says there's a 1 in 74 million chance that this happened naturally and implying that the person who was being charged and on trial was guilty, which is a fairly incriminating piece of statistical evidence, as we saw. What would your approach be to seeing something like that in the case file? When reading a report like that, um, I would be pretty critical on it, (laughs) I think. We luckily don't see it that often in the Netherlands, but nowadays we see forensic reports with uh, logical errors like that happened in the Sally Clark case with the statistician report. Um, And we will note the judge about that. And often I think in a case like that, my advice would be to ask for a counter-export or ask for another statistician to look at the co-evaluation. One of the big things is time of death that experts can actually narrow a really specific window of time to the death. And that's one of the most contentious things in forensic science. And I imagine that judges would find that quite tricky as well to process how difficult it can be after being informed for all these years that that it was a science to estimate the time of death. Is that a fair thing to say, that that could be a tricky thing for them to interpret? We could help in two different ways. One thing is that we educate our judges. So we give quite a few talks at our courts and we can do this by ourselves, but we can also invite an expert. So, for example, in this case, we could invite time of that expert. 
Uh, and then you could just educate them in general. But if this would be case specific and I see that judges or prosecution or the defense has questions about uh, the time of that report, I can advise the judge on, for example, uh, asking the expert to come to trial. And I can advise on what questions to ask the expert to make the findings of the report more understandable and clear. During the trial process, often the only things that are unclear or discrepancies, they will be discussed during the trial. But if the report is clear for all the parties, then it will be stated everyone has read it. Yes, everyone accepts the conclusions. Yes, and then we continue. Because it is expected from everyone before the trial process starts to have read the whole case file. And then we start the trial process. So I know it's very different from the jury system, the adversarial system, where all the evidence will be presented at court. That's incredibly different. And yeah. then the prosecution <laughs> present their version of the evidence and then defence present their version of the evidence. Yeah, and we just have one case file presented by the prosecutor. And if the defence wants to add information, they can do that via the investigative judge. Is the Netherlands the only place forensic advisors are used? Uh, that's actually a really good question. Uh, in the way we establish the role, so next so we were working for the judge, we are, the, as far as I'm aware of, the only country in the world who does it like that. In Belgium, they also have a forensic advisor, but they actually work for the prosecution. So that's a completely different role. And we know in uh, Scandinavia, they're also thinking about some sort of a role forensic advisor. So you could actually be leading the world in changes to the judicial system to try and help eliminate miscarriages of justice? Well, in the end, I think there is a gap between science and law, and I'm not saying forensic advisors are the solution, but I think it is a effort, at least the Netherlands is making, to try to bridge this gap between science and law. And I think definitely other systems could also look at this role. Uh, that's one of the reasons also why we published our article in English um, because in the end, I think the biggest part of our role is to communicate evidence in such forensic evidence in such a way to the judges that they will understand it. And I think that could be very useful in every legal system. So how do you stay up to date and to make sure that you're of a, a similar standard in terms of your advice and knowledge and ability to advise? So forensic advisors advise in very complex cases, often on complex scientific uh, fields. So what we do is we put a lot of effort in education of the forensic advisors to keep our knowledge as um, up to date as possible. And we also have a lot of peer-reviewed intervention. So we check each other advice, but also we have a partially external committee who will check us um, to make sure that our advices are up to a certain level. And consistent. Yes, we also, we all the forensic advisors in the Netherlands are very closely in touch with each other and we all use the same format to write our advices because we want the advice to be uniform. So that keeps you honest. Well, in the end, we're all humans and we're all prone to bias and the only thing we can do is put as much safeguards in as possible to try to make us advice as objective as possible. It's a really interesting um, approach and I think it's impressive that you've done that in the Netherlands. And you're not saying that it's the answer to everything. But it may be a step in the right direction that other countries like Australia can consider. I think so, because mostly when we talk to judges, they are really positive about the incorporation of the role in the, in the Dutch system. Because they have the feeling they understand reports better. 
And also the forensic experts are quite positive about the role because they have the feeling their reports are being better understood and less misinterpretations are being made. And in the end, I think that all sums up to potentially having less miscarriages of justice. Crime Insiders Forensics is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Catherine Fox, and is produced by Ed Gooden. Sound design and imaging is by Link Kelly. <laughs>